Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you chose to give us birth through the word of truth. We thank you that we have the opportunity now to open scripture and to hear the word of truth. And we pray that as we reflect on James, hear your word explained from James, that we will seek wisdom and believe that you will grant us wisdom and not doubt. For we earnestly seek it so that we may be people who are worthy of the calling of the gospel. So please do open our hearts and minds to receiving your word now. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'll be reading the passage for today from James chapter 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. And if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position. But the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of all he created. This is the word of the Lord. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good morning, brothers and sisters. It is important to understand the context surrounding its writing as much as possible with any biblical book. The various books of the Bible were written in real historical setting by people 
with particular motivations and concern. So studying these kind of background issues can help us understand the books better. We are better equipped to understand what the epistle meant when it was first written, when we consider the setting and motivation associated with the books of James. And so we can apply James's word more effectively on our own lives today. To understand the background of James, we'll first consider the authorship of the book. Then we will look at the original audience. And finally, we will examine the purpose of which the letter of James was written. Let's begin with the authorship of the epistles of James. The writer of this letter simply introduces himself as James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, verse 1. He doesn't get any more specific than that. The church tradition passed down has always been that this James is none other than the brother of Jesus. He was not a follower of Jesus during Jesus' ministry on earth, showing in John chapter 7, verse 5. But at, this, uh, at some point in his life, James became to have, to have saving faith in Jesus as his Lord. In addition, we know that according to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, Jesus appeared to James after his resurrection. This meeting forever changed the way that James viewed his brother Jesus. Later, James became a leader in the church in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 15, when the council of Jerusalem is deciding whether the Gentiles need to be circumcised to be a follower of Jesus, James's speech, speech is the most important and actually decides the matter. But for all that, he was incredibly humble. As we see in this letter, James referred himself as a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now consider the original audience. In verse 1, James identified his reader as the twelve tribes scattered among the nations. This seems to be a reference to Jews who live outside Israel. And in chapter 2 verse 1, James addressed his audience as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. Take together. These verses indicate that James's original audience was primarily made up of Jewish Christians who live outside of Palestine. James addressed his audience affectionately as brothers on several occasions, or in our translation we use brothers and sisters. But how did James live in Jerusalem know his audience well enough to speak to them in this way. 
Well, in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 to 4, which we have read before, we learn that in the wave of persecution following Stephen's martyrdom, members of the Jerusalem church were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. It's possible then that James, as the leader of the church in Jerusalem, was writing to these scattered members. And now look at the purpose. One of the most helpful ways to summarize the overarching purpose of James is to look at his opening words, which we'll shortly do it later, in verses 2 to 4. And this passage indicates James's audience was facing trials of many kinds. James called his audience to pursue wisdom from God so that they would have joy in their trials. That is verse 5. It was important for James's audience to hear this message. As we said earlier, James's audience was no longer in Palestine. They were living scattered among the nations, far from their homes. No doubt, it wasn't easy for them to find joy in trials. This appears to have let some of them abandon their loyalty to Christ. Instead, they were pursuing what James called friendship with the world, chapter 4, verse 4. Clearly, there were some in James's audience who had strayed far from the faith. And James warned them that being friends with the world make them an enemy of God. James directed believers to humble themselves so that God would lift them up. He taught that humility before God is a path to wisdom. And when Christ's followers draw near to God in humble submission, the wisdom they receive brings joy, even as they persevere through trials. Show in chapter 4, verses 8 and 10. With this in mind, now let's turn to this morning passage. Verse 2. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. This passage may seem odd to us, especially because it addresses people who were facing trials of many kinds. But James appeared to consider trust pure joy. It's not as unusual as we might think. Note that the Jewish Christians of the early church were hated by the Gentiles for being Jews. They were hated by the Jews for being Christian. Basically, nobody liked them and everyone was against them. They were forced to leave Jerusalem, their homes, their families, their jobs, and wandered in isolation and were scattered around the Mediterranean world. They were facing different kinds of trials that no doubt discouraged them. Now James is writing to this group of Jewish Christians 
who are undergoing severe hardship. They were hated and despised. But rather than cons- uh, cons- consoling them, he challenged them. He challenged them to rethink their difficulties. And he challenged them to trust God in the midst of their difficulties. In all this, James stresses, keep your attitude right. Don't give up. Let the joy of the Lord be your strength. And for this reason, James begins with a call to joy. In verses 3 and 4, James taught that perseverance through trust makes it possible for believers to be mature and complete. In other words, when God's people endure hardship, they grow into the fullness of all that God intends for them. But in reality, it's often difficult for even the most sincere believer to see how this is true in the midst of suffering. This is why in the very next verse, James told his reader to pursue wisdom from God. In times of difficulty, we become acutely aware of our needs for wisdom. It is easy to feel lost or unprepared. Those who want to have pure joy as they suffer trials must ask God for insight. They need wisdom to help them understand how their trials lead to their betterment. And if we ask for this kind of wisdom from God, we will give, He will give it to us. When we receive the wisdom to understand how God works through trials, we can be, rejoic- be joyful. Wisdom strengthens our confidence that God has ordained for us the blessing of eternal salvation. Therefore, James says in verse 5, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all. God does not leave us alone to find our way through our trials. He generously and graciously gives wisdom to those who ask in faith. God is ready and willing to give wisdom. But there is a qualifier. We must ask, believing that He will give it. We must trust that He will hear and answer our request. But receiving God's wisdom does not make enduring trust easy or simple. Receiving God's wisdom does not mean the storm will immediately die down and the water become placid. Wisdom shows us where to put our faith. Wisdom gives an anchor to our faith so that we don't drift away and so we don't sink. That's why James reminds the church that when we ask, we in verse six to eight, verses six to eight, we must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blow, blown and tossed by the wind. 
that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. James chose the image of wave because a wave is a complete victim of circumstances. Waves move wherever they are pushed or pulled. If the wind pushes a wave east, it goes east. If the wind pushes the wave west, it goes west. If the wave pulls in two directions, what happens? <laughs> it becomes floating mass. A goal of faith is not to be a wave. The goal is to hold on to wisdom and be anchored in Christ. The goal is to trust God in His wisdom throughout all circumstances, no matter what. The person who doubts is described as double-minded and will not receive wisdom from God. Wisdom assures us that God is in control in all your circumstances. No matter what trials come our way, wisdom assures us that we are not alone. We are not outside of God's hand. Wisdom teaches that through all things, God will work to the good of those who love Him. Through all things, especially tests and trials, God will shape us, form us, develop our character, make us mature and complete, lacking nothing. This is wisdom. And this wisdom is a gift from God. In the context of responding to trials, James applied the truth of enduring with joy and godly wisdom to two different situations. The situation of a poor man and of a rich man in verses 9 to 11. Both the poor and the rich man are called to see themselves rightly in respect to God and others. In order to go through temptations and trials successfully, we will need the wisdom of God. God alone can help us understand the what and whys of our temptations and how we are to improve by them. The same wisdom is needed by all in the midst of trials, both by the rich and the poor. The poor who are Christian have a high position in God's view despite their low state in the world. Verse 9. They should rejoice because of future exaltation. The rich should rejoice of his blessing today and not become frustrated if his riches fade away. Verse 10. The Jews commonly think that if a person was rich, it meant he was being rewarded by God, and if he was poor, he was being judged by God. It seems clear that James is indicating that neither poverty nor wealth is a true indication of where we stand in Christ Jesus. 
Rather, the rich and the poor are on a level playing field when it comes to spiritual standing before God. The rich man would be wrong to attempt to use his wealth to commend himself before God. Life is so uncertain that tragedy and despair may strike at any time. It is foolish to think or to trust in anything like wealth that may be lost in a moment. It is only wise to trust in things that cannot be lost. The rich man himself will fade away even while he goes about his business. That's verse 11. In the midst of his busy life, and end, the end will come and all his wealth will make no difference. The rich man may seem powerful now, but God will bring him low in the end unless he humbles himself now. This is a complete reversal of status. James called for a proper attitude towards material things. He understood the true nature of riches. They are so impermanent, like a lovely blossom, so quickly destroyed by the burning sun and desert wind. An interesting phrase in verse 12, crown of life. This is a promise that comes along with our trust. And that is the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Verse 12. Our trust set us back. We struggle. We sometimes complain to God. And sometimes we just greet our teeth and hang on. But we do so with the vision ahead of a reward, a promise given to the winners, those who have stood the test. The promise stimulates and encourages perseverance in us. And so as we grow in Christian life, we move from innocent, infant faith, yet untried, through faith that is tested and found true to a confidence in God that enable us to be more than conquerors and laugh with joy at our trust, knowing that God's love for us endures and that we look forward to a crown of life. Well, we have examined the value of trials. Now let's consider the nature of those trials. When we get into trouble, it seems like two questions tumble out of our mouths. What did I ever do to deserve this? And why is God doing this to me? God allows evil in the world. That's part of Him allowing us our free will. Did God create evil? No. He created possibility of evil. But that is not the same as he creating evil. Let's rephrase the statement. Does God create injustice and unrighteousness? Of course not. 
He stands di diametrically opposed to injustice and unrighteousness, to evil of all kinds. James applied this by asserting that God does not tempt us with evil in order to see if we will fall. It is with this negative sense of do tempt by evil that James asserts, no one should say, God is tempting me. Verse 13. In the same way, Jesus taught his disciples to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God tests us to strengthen and confirm us in our faith. But the evil is the, but the evil is in our struggle doesn't come from God. The fact that James takes the time to mention this indicates that there must have been some people making the absurd declaration that God was tempting them. James says, when we are tempted, we should not blame God for our failures. We should take a responsibility of our own sin, moral or spiritual failures come from within, not from external sources. We sin because we have evil desires. Verse 14. It is interesting to note that James does not mention Satan's role in temptation either. We are specifically told that we fall into sin because of our own evil desires. If it is our own lust that draw us into sin, then we cannot say, the devil make me do it. God has given man free will choice. Satan can make sin look attractive and appealing. Man chooses whether he will become involved in it or not. Sin is a choice. Man chooses if to sin or to avoid sin. No one has the power to make me sin. If sin it is because of my own wrong choice. James said that death is the ultimate result of sin in verse 15. While a literal physical death is probably not the intended meaning, James wants his reader to understand the destructive power of sin. As one old cliche says, only a fool fools with sin. It is like playing with a live hand grenade. It can only end with destruction. A holy and righteous God will never lead you into sin because he knows of his destructive power. His goal is to build you up and bring you towards holiness. To do otherwise would be a gross violation of his own character and nature. The final step in the process of dealing with temptation is to reject it. 
James tells us in verse 16, Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. In other words, don't fall for temptation. Reject it. Once you see it for what it is, get away from it. Be warned. Don't take the warning lightly. We must not take temptation lightly, no matter how it appears. The key, of course, is seeing it for what it is. We need to see that it is not good, no matter how it appears. Satan does not give good gifts. Verse 17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change light-shifting shadows. God's gifts are good and perfect, and His gifts just keep coming. The tense of the word coming down indicates an unending succession of gifts. The salt of this abundance is the Father of the heavenly lights. He created the heavenly bodies that declare His glory. Yet the sun, according to our perception, rises and sets and the shadow varies throughout the day. But God is unchanging. His promises never vary through the changes and chances of our circumstances. Remember that James began by saying that God did not cause temptation to come to us. God is not the source of our temptation. Temptation is not a good thing. It is a bad thing. And God does not give bad things to us. Satan would like for temptation to look like a good thing. Don't be fooled. Reject that lie outright. The good news is that those who are born of God can resist temptation. The good news is that you can win over temptation. Temptation doesn't have to defeat you. You have been set free by the power of the life of Christ within you. You no longer have to be a slave to sin. You now have the power to resist and reject sinful practices. Verse 18 says, He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. James asserts that God is the source of our salvation. New birth came through the word of truth. In his own temptation, Jesus often referred to the scripture saying, It is written. We too can experience deliverance through the word of truth. As the first fruit of his creation, we are to overcome temptation and serve as a pledge of the full gospel harvest to come. In other words, it is the new birth that provides the power for living 
that we need. Everything that we need is given to us through that life of Christ within us. It is that life that makes the difference. Concerning temptation, we have the following promise in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind, and God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out of to so that you can endure it. God says that He will always make a way of escape. Let His promise be an anchor to your faith. Well, in conclusion, let's recap what we have learned this morning. First, trust. Christians throughout the ages and around the world have not been strangers to suffering. But the Christian message is that we can respond to suffering differently because we have hope. Not only hope beyond the grave, but sure hope now that God uses them to refine us. That God uses trials to deepen our faith, to make us spiritually whole. Trials of any kind can have a purpose. When we respond to them in the right way, with confidence in God and a determination to endure. Second, joy. As individuals and as a church, we must strive to have a view towards joy in the midst of difficult situations. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but we can trust that God will use these trials to accomplish His purposes. And we navigate in their uncertain times we must trust his plan, submit to his work in us, and go to him in faith, asking for wisdom. We must believe that trust can be turned to our good and learn to joyfully accept our lot in life and look hopefully to the future. Finally, temptations. First, don't be surprised by temptation. Expect it. It comes to everyone. It will come to you. It is inevitable. There is no sin in being tempted. No one can eradicate these enticements. But we are responsible for our reaction to them. Second, don't be confused by temptation. Understand it. It may seem desirable, but it leads to deception and disobedience, and eventually death. Think about the consequences. Third, don't be deceived by temptation. Stand up to it. It may seem good, but it is not. 
You may even feel cheated or deprived as you imagine that God is holding back on you and violating your rights. Perhaps you feel cheated of something life owns you. If you experience this feeling, you are listening to the voice of the tempter. Let the Father deliver you and get you his strength and give you his strength right now. Last but not least, temptation may seem too strong for you, but you can resist it in the power of the Spirit who lives in you. You are a child of God. You can have, uh, you have been born again. Christ's life lives in you. You can win over temptation. God has given you the power. Amen. May the Lord bless you.